Well, good morning. It's great to be with you this morning. Great to sing songs of praise and worship. And uh, as you can see in your bulletin, we are going to be looking at Psalm 116 this morning. And our, our title this morning is God, Our Deliverer, Why We Are a People Who Tell. And that's been our, that's our acronym that we use. But in general, we are a people who tell. And the psalm that we look at this morning is going to be a story that David tells us um, of a time, of a difficult time that he went through and God's faithfulness in that time. And so the theme here, the theme of this psalm is the theme of deliverance. And if you think about Scripture, you can look all through Scripture, you'll see this theme happen over and over again, just a, just a few. You can think of Joseph in prison in Egypt. He's delivered from prison um, by God. You can think of Daniel in the lion's den. Grateful, I'm sure, that he was delivered uh, from, the, from the mouths of the lions. You think of Peter and John in prison and Paul persecuted over and over again. And God shows up every time and delivers them. And this is in our cultural lexicon as well, this idea of being delivered. You can see Aslan saving the children and the land from the White Witch, right, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. You can see Frodo, and uh, uh, in one sense, being sort of saved from a life of boredom in the Shire, but also then with the fellowship, saving mankind from the evil Sauron. Uh, you can see, uh, even in movies and in real life, Oscar Schindler saving uh, uh, dozens and dozens of Jews from the Nazi concentration camps and from certain death. And today, we're going to see a story of deliverance that David shares with us in Psalm 116. And this psalm, this story is interesting because it's, it's a story that is contemporary. In other words, it's, it's in the moment or in the, in the lifetime of David that he's telling it. But it harkens back, it reminds us of the story of the Jews being delivered from Egypt. And it looks forward to God's deliverance of his people, of us, from the bondage of sin and death. Whenever you see a story of deliverance in Scripture, there's always a greater purpose at work. Joseph's deliverance resulted in his family, the very nation of Israel, being saved from famine. Daniel was saved from the lion's den and went on to proclaim the supremacy of God and to prophesy in his name. Peter and John, along with Paul and the rest of the early church, they were saved over and over again. They were delivered so that they could continue to spread the gospel across the Middle East and Asia. There's always a purpose for God's deliverance. So before I read this passage today, let me ask you this question. What has God delivered you from? And what was his purpose in doing that? So if you look at the outline in your bulletin, you can see where we plan to go this morning. I want to warn you in advance, there's 19 verses in this psalm, and you could do a half a dozen or more deep sermons on any two or three verses. And um, so we're going to go through it rather quickly, which I know are famous last words for a preacher. Uh, but we're going to go through it rather quickly, and then I want to talk about some overarching themes that we see in this psalm. And then finally, what does that mean for us in the way that we live our lives today? So turn with me in your Bibles, if you will, to Psalm 116, and let's hear the word of the Lord. I love the Lord. 
because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because he inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. And then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest. For the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed, even when I spoke, I'm greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, I'm your servant. I'm your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, O Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we look at your word, as we look at this psalm that your child David wrote, so many years ago that we would be able to read it today. We see you, Lord, as, as a God who is not watching us from far away, who is not wound things up and let them run on their own, Lord, but we see a God who is intimately involved in our lives, a God who hears us when we pray, a God who saves us when we are in despair, a God who delivers us from death. And Lord, we hear this, we want to believe this with all our hearts. It is such good news that you would love us like this. And Lord, we see the example of that in your son, Jesus, coming to walk among us, to experience the same things, the same despair, the same difficulty, the same, uh, the lies of, of men around him. And so, Lord, this psalm rings true in our hearts. And, Lord, we pray that you would speak to us this morning through your word, that you would encourage our hearts, that you would call us to worship, Lord, that you would call us to live our lives in front of all mankind, and in your presence among all your people. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, this is Psalm 116. This is, uh, this is uh, part of a group of psalms from 113 to 118. They're called the praise psalms or the Egyptian uh, Hallel. Somebody can tell me how to pronounce that after service correctly. 
Um, but they are the praise psalms. Why are they called that? Well, because these are the psalms that were sung during feasts. You can look at Leviticus uh, 23. You can see a list of the feasts. The first feast listed is the Feast of Passover. And so in the liturgy of Passover, Psalm 113 and 114 would often be sung before dinner. And Psalm uh, 115 through 118 would be sung after dinner. In fact, if you look at the institution of the Last Supper, the, the following verse in Matthew and Mark is identical. It's Mark 14, 26. And it says this, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And so this psalm right here, many scholars think this psalm was the hymn that they sung. So when we read a psalm like this, when we study a psalm like this, we're studying the very words that Jesus and his disciples would have sung together through the Passover. It's a wonderful connection to Jesus and to the early church. And this theme of deliverance of David personally is what made it such a great psalm to sing when you're celebrating God's faithfulness in delivering the people of Israel. It's an intensely personal psalm. If you counted all the I's and me's and my's, which I did for you, so you don't have to do that right now, there's 32 of them. Every verse, except for verse 5 and 19, has a personal pronoun in it, either I or me or my. This is, this is not a psalm that's expounding doctrine or theological constructs theoretically, but practically. It's the, the theology that comes out of this, the truth that comes out of this, comes out of belief and experience, actual experience that David is sharing. So it's not so much stating a doctrine of God, but showing the effects of it in a specific way for a specific person. And so it illustrates larger truths that we can apply. This is the story of David being delivered from some trial where his life was at great risk. He says the snares of death were wrapped around him. The grave had a hold of him. And he was obviously very close to death. So let's run through the psalm. We'll go through it in little clumps of verses and we'll sort of skim, not skim it, but we'll, we'll look at the major themes of it, and then we'll dive in a little bit deeper after we go through it. So, verses 1 through 4, and I'm just going to read them again as we go here. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy, because he inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. And then listen to this turn. And then I called on the name of the Lord. O oh Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. This, tell, this psalm tells a story. And great stories have great opening lines. Think of a tale of two cities. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Or the Bible itself. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. A good opening line is pregnant with promise of what the story is going to be about. And this one is no different. I love the Lord because. It's an opening line that we would want to put ourselves in, right? Imagine writing a psalm. If your psalm started, I love the Lord because, what would come next? David loved the Lord because he heard him. 
He inclines his head to him. This is not a picture of God being interrupted by David's prayers, but of actively hearing him all the time. How does David know that God hears him? Because, as we'll see, God delivered him. This is not hypothetical here. This is a real danger, a real threat of death. He felt like he was in a trap. The words here are literally the ideas of a snare, the ideas of rope being wrapped around you and pulling you down, pulling him towards the grave, towards Sheol. And you may not have had a near-death experience, but we've all suffered times when we felt hopeless, when we couldn't see a way through. We've all suffered distress and anguish, and David's response in those times should be our response. Lord, deliver me. God does not always save us from having trouble. When Jesus taught the disciples to pray, he did not say, lead us not into temptation and prevent evil from ever happening to us. That would be great, but he said, deliver us from evil. We will face evil, but God will deliver us from it. So rest assured that God is listening. His head is inclined towards you, and he will answer if we but pray, Lord, deliver my soul. Going on in verse 5, Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, all my soul, to your rest. For the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. In these verses, we see God engaged, listening, gracious, righteous, merciful, in his grace, he hears the prayers of one who does not deserve it. In his righteousness, he is true to his promises. And in his mercy, he is compassionate and kind. And if you look at this, you see grace and then righteousness and then mercy. But righteousness is bracketed by grace and mercy. That should be a comfort to us. And he preserves the simple. You don't need to be a Bible scholar for the Lord to take care of you. The Pharisees reveled in their scholarly, scholarly pursuits, in their religious piety. Jesus had harsh words for them in Matthew 23. You see in verses 2 and 3, he says, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe what they tell you, but not the works they do, for they preach, but they do not practice. He spends the next eight verses excoriating the Pharisees, talking about them as hypocrites, and then he says this in verse 12, Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. The Lord preserves the simple. God loves the plea of the simple sinner who knows he is simple. And in light of an almighty, all-powerful, omniscient God of the universe, who among us is not simple? David's soul could not rest as he remembered that God is gracious. Excuse me, David's soul could rest as he remembered that God is gracious and merciful. And so he deals bountifully, he deals generously with David. And he describes this in verse 8. God's deliverance is not just from death, but from grief and sadness. He says he saves my eyes from tears. And it's from, he saves us from from uh, confusion and doubt and sin, he saves us, he saves him from stumbling. Or another way of looking at this, this verse says that God delivers us from death to salvation. 
from tears to joy, from stumbling to holiness. And we should praise God for these mercies. So here at this point, you see a shift in the psalm. Up to this point, David has described what God has done for him and its impact on his soul. And then the rest of the, the psalm now focuses on what David's response is to who God is and what he has done. In other words, the first half of this psalm is, I love God because. But the second half of this psalm is, because I love God, I will. Verse 9, I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. In verse 9, he's talking about living publicly as a follower of God. If I can't live publicly, publicly, what does that say about my faith? What does that say about my affections? If you have all the knowledge of Scripture and doctrine, or even if you do tons of good works at your church or for your neighbors, but you are unable to live publicly as a follower of Christ, you need to work on your heart, not on your knowledge or your actions. Jesus talks about this in the Sermon on the Mount when he says in Matthew 5.16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. David recognized that even as he believed, he was still frustrated, maybe even fearful. When he said, in my alarm, he recognizes that he's speaking hastily as if God was not truly in control. He says, when I am tempted to give in to despair because the world is so sinful, I will still believe. Looking back at verse 7, I will remind myself, David says, return, O my soul, to your rest. Going on to verse 12, what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of his people. And so David shifts his focus from worrying about the world to focusing on what God has done for him. And as he focuses on all the benefits that God has given him, he responds in the only appropriate way there is, worship. He lifts up the cup of salvation, remembering what God has done as he calls on the name of the Lord. Now, this is not a cup of salvation that David is bringing to God. It's like a drink offering that you would see in the Old Testament. This is a cup of salvation that God is giving to David, that God is giving to us. And so when we, when we take communion together, we've read this before, communion before. When we take communion together, we're not bringing anything to the table. We're not bringing some cup. We're not bringing the wine for us. We're accepting this gift that God has given to us, and that's what David is praising God for. He's lifting up. He's showing everyone this cup of salvation that God has given to him, and he's worshiping God for it. He's paying his vows in the presence of all his people. He's made his own commitments, David has, to follow God and to lead his people. And he's committed to fulfilling those vows as God has fulfilled his promises to David. Verse 15. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifices of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. 
Our lives and death have a purpose. As I, as I was studying this passage, this verse is the one that probably caught me a little off guard. This is the one that pulled me in to really try to figure out what it meant. And once I got into it, I realized how deep this verse is. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. What does that mean? It means that our death isn't careless to God. That we're not some chess piece on a cosmic game board just being moved around to sacrifice in this game against Satan. To lull Satan into complacency. Satan's already lost. David's death and your death and my death is not just some necessary step on the way to heaven. Our lives now matter. The way we live our lives in front of the world matters. The way we worship God and live among his people matters. This is David's worship continuing. It started with lifting the cup of salvation, accepting God's gift and calling on the name of the Lord. And it continues with acknowledging God's love for his people so deep that their deaths are precious. David is thanking God now for giving him a place, his family, and his freedom. His place is a servant in the court of the king. David could understand this well. He had servants, and he's placing himself in that position in relation to God. He recognizes that he is part of a family, the son of another servant, also in the house of the Lord. And yet, even as a servant, his bonds are loosed. His service is willing. It's out of gratitude, not out of compulsion. Therefore, he offers this thanksgiving sacrifice as well, obeying God's laws and calling on the name of the Lord. And then finally, in verse 18, he says, I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. This is a a repeat of verse 14. In the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, O Jerusalem, praise the Lord. So finally, David's reiterating his commitment to paying his vows to the Lord and doing it in front of God's people. It reminds me of what Pastor Jesse preached last week in Psalm 27.4 when David said, One thing I, I, have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. David longed to be in the court of the Lord, in the house of the Lord. And this is David's promise. Lord, let me dwell in your house so that I can worship you in your courts, in front of your people. Praise the Lord, he finishes. Hallelujah. So this is David's story. I love the Lord, because when I was in great distress, distress, feeling like I was going to die, God heard my prayers and he answered them. He saved me from the grave. He saves me from wicked people. He saves me from my own despair and cynicism. Me, David, a simple shepherd boy, Become king of Israel. You, Lord, decided to preserve. Why? Because, God, you are gracious, merciful, righteous Savior. You are worthy of my praise. You are worthy of my thanksgiving. You are worthy of my worship. And because I love you, I want everyone to know. I will walk in the wa- I will walk in your ways in the land of the living in front of the whole world, and I will give you praise and thanksgiving in front of all of your people. David understood his role. 
a servant, a regular family member in the house of God, the son of a woman also serving God, but he also understood his role. Perhaps he was simple, but he was still a king. And so he publicly fulfilled his vows to the Lord for all to see, putting himself in service to a greater king, the king of kings, so that others might see him and do the same. This is David's story. It's a good one. I would take Dickens' story and kind of switch the opening line to, it was the worst of times, it was the best of times. That's David's story in Psalm 116. So what is the bigger story that we live in, that we can see in this passage? So I see three lessons that we can learn in Psalm 116 that inform the larger story of how we live as children of God. And they are this, who God is, what God does, and what David did. First of all, who God is. David proclaims throughout this passage several attributes of God and how they related to his deliverance from death and despair. And in three of these attributes, he puts all together in verse 5. God is gracious. God is righteous. God is merciful. God is gracious. He preserves his own children. You cannot out God's grace. He forgives you. You cannot disqualify yourself. David stole another man's wife and then had him killed. And God's grace was more powerful than David's sin. And it's more powerful than your sin too. David was able to continue serving God even after tremendous sin. It doesn't mean that there were no consequences. He lost a baby and another son due to his sin and poor fathering. But that did not negate God's plan for his life. God is righteous. A lot of times when we think of righteousness, I think we think of like being judged against some standard. But in this sense, what, he, what David's talking about here is that God himself is righteous. He keeps his covenants. He, when he makes a promise, he does exactly what he said he would. His words and his character and his actions are always perfectly consistent. You can count on God. But because he is righteous, we will have to bear the consequences for our sins in this life. And finally, God is merciful. He understands our limitations. He knows we will sin. He knows we will act unwisely. He knows we will stumble, and yet he still extends mercy to us. Praise God. And then in verse 15, we talked about the death of, of saints is precious to him. Just as our lives are precious to him, he preserves and saves and delivers us. And our deaths are precious. David's death and yours and mine, they all matter to God. We're not pawns in his game. He is invested and involved in the way we live. So these are God's attributes that David extols. His graciousness, his righteousness his mercy, and his love for us as even our deaths are precious. So if this is God's attributes, what does God do? Well, in verses 1 and 2, he talks about how God hears us. He doesn't just, he doesn't just hear us like, a, like he heard a voice and he decided to pay attention. His head is inclining to hear us. This should bring great comfort for you when you're crying out to God. You don't have to get his attention. You already have it. God loves his children, and like a shepherd, he knows his sheep. Like a parent, he is paying attention to his children. 
in verse 6, David talks about how God preserves. His preservation of the simple is the action that shows his mercy. His children don't have to meet some minimum requirement. He preserves even the simple. And this isn't salvation in the sense of justification alone. This is preserving our very lives on this side of death. In verse 6, he also said that God saves. When David was brought low and humbled and close to death, God saved him. God saves all of us. He may take you home when he deems it, but we all know stories. Some of you probably have stories where God has saved you from death or despair, and he will do it again in the days ahead for the people sitting right here in this room. God deals bountifully. He is generous with us. This also speaks to not really getting what we deserve, but instead experiencing his grace and mercy. And then in verse 8, sort of the theme for this passage, he says, God delivers. God's deliverance is not just from death, but from grief and sadness and from confusion and doubt and sin and stumbling. Remember, he saves us from death to salvation. He saves us from tears to joy. He saves us from stumbling to holiness. And then finally, in verse 16, he says he loosens our bonds. Our bonds to God loosen our bonds to sin, death, and brokenness. What are you in bondage to this morning? What might God do to loosen those bonds, to release you from them? Will you pray for freedom or will you suffer by yourself needlessly? Are you clinging to your suffering as some sort of penance that you think is going to earn God's grace? That's not what grace is. Are you trying to prove to God that you're worthy through some sense of self-righteousness? You can never measure up to that standard. And you don't need to. He looses those bonds. He frees us from that bondage to sin. When we think of God's attributes, it's easier to think of them in the bigger cosmic picture. As if God dips his finger into creation once in a while, like some Michelangelo painting. But David is clear, and the incarnation shows this attribute of God. He is intimately concerned with our lives in the here and now. He is actively listening, actively saving, actively preserving, actively loosening bonds for each of you, for me, right now, because he is gracious and righteous and merciful. You are not a pawn in a giant game. He places a high value on your life and on your death. So if this is who God is and what God does, then what is David's response? And what should our response be and my response be? To find that in this passage, you only have to look for two words. On Wednesday nights, we talk about looking for repeated words. So in this passage, there's this repeated phrase, I will. So if you look in this passage for the words, I will, you will see several things that David does as a result, as a response. He says, I will call on him as long as I live. I called on the name of the Lord. I will call on the name of the Lord. He says that two more times. So what is the first thing that David does? He prays. 
And our first response to God should also be to call on him name, on his name. The interesting thing I want you to notice about this, though, is that this is the idea of public prayer. This is not the sense of going off privately to pray to God, but publicly calling on the name of the Lord when you're struggling. This means that when you come on a Sunday morning and when you come to intercessory prayer and you're struggling and you're suffering, you don't keep it to yourself. You call on the name of the Lord in front of his people. We want to walk with you through that. We want to pray for you. We, how can we know the great story of God's deliverance if we don't know that you need to be delivered from something? Pray to the Lord. Call on his name. Do it in front of his people. And, do, and call on his name in front of the world. Let people know who you're relying on for your deliverance, for your Savior, that you're not trying to save yourself. But instead, you're relying on the God of the universe who has inclined his head towards you, his child. The second thing he says in verse 9 is, I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. The Lord will keep my feet from stumbling. He will keep the tears from my eyes. This is the here and now. I walk boldly in the world among the living, showing the world what it looks like to live a life following God in my work in my play. Do these things. Have a family. Have friends. Serve your community. Don't just sit around waiting to die and go to heaven, distracting yourself with video games or YouTube, even if it is Alistair Begg and Bodie Bauckham sermons, or reading your 19th Puritan book. Read like three or four, and then go out and live your life among the world, showing them what it means to walk in, the, in, in relationship with God. The world needs to see us live so that they can see who God really is. The third thing he says is, I will lift up the cup of salvation. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. I will offer the sacrifice of thanksgiving. I will praise the Lord. And so the third thing that David does is he worships. Remembering that we are lifting up the cup of salvation given to us. We don't bring it. How do we worship him when he saves us? We accept even more of his grace. That's how we worship him. Paul extols the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 5. He says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Live a life of worship. And so we should pray we should call on the name of the Lord. We should walk before the Lord in the land of the living. We should live lives out in front of people that bring glory to Christ, and we should worship him. I'm gonna, I want to take a quick little side road here before we go in um, to the last point, and I want to just point out what I think is a fascinating thing about this passage, and that is this. How, if you were to look at this passage... How would you see this passage pointing us to Christ? We can see this passage makes sense as a hymn for Passover because of David's story of deliverance. It would resonate with the Jewish people, celebrating God saving their people from captivity and the foes that, many foes that they faced along the way. But how does this psalm point to Christ as well? Well, let me, let me say this. 
If you read this psalm, I think you can see Christ's imprint, imprint all throughout it. In fact, if you walk down through this psalm and you replace the word Lord with Father, much of it applies to Christ's own relationship with the Father and his response to it. The Father certainly was listening to his Son. Jesus was certainly in the snares of death. The grave had laid hold of him. When Christ was brought low by the Roman death sentence, God preserved him. His body did not decay. He was delivered from death. He returned to walk in the land of the living. He obviously experienced great affliction. And men like the Pharisees and Judas who were liars, Christ became the cup of salvation on our behalf. And his vows made in the covenant of redemption before the dawn of time, he surely kept, and he kept them publicly. His death was precious in the eyes of the Father. He submits himself to the Father and is the son of God's maidservant, Mary. The Father loosed the bonds of death, and Jesus now resides in the courts of heaven in the presence of the Father, interceding for us. This is a messianic psalm. This, the themes of this psalm point us to who Christ is and Christ's own relationship with the Father. It's a lesson for us to follow. So here we see in one psalm, God's perfect plan, a story of deliverance for David that points back to the deliverance of God's people from Egypt and points forward to the deliverance of God's people by Jesus Christ. So what about you? Are you ready to tell your story? If you were to write a story that began, I love the Lord because, I asked you this before, what would come next? Every time we hear a testimony here at Grace, this is basically what we are hearing. We have heard amazing stories of the Lord delivering people from painful childhoods, from past church hurts, from a life of sin and separation from God. People have shared about crying out to God and how He answered their prayers and He healed their hearts. But while a story like that is good, it's incomplete without the second half. I love the Lord because He saved me, because He's faithful to me, because He hears my prayers and rescues me. Yes, the Lord is gracious and righteous and merciful. I do know that He cares for me, but we need the rest of the story. I love the Lord because He cares for me, and because I love Him, I will our response should include the responses that David himself had. Because I love the Lord, I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I will live out my life following Christ publicly where I can be seen. And because I love the Lord, I will worship him. I will accept the cup of salvation. I will offer my thanksgiving. I will be his servant. And because I love the Lord, I will be a part of his people. I will worship with them, serve with them, and praise God with them. Brothers and sisters, what is your story of God's deliverance? I'd love to hear it. I bet you it's a good one. 
Or maybe he's writing that story right now in your life. Maybe right now you're in the midst of a great rescue by the God of the universe, and it will be a story to tell. Or perhaps you're yearning for it. You feel like the cords of death and despair are pulling you down right now. You are greatly afflicted, and there are people who are harming or disappointing you. Take heart. Call on the name of the Lord. He's listening. He is gracious and merciful. He remembers his promises, and he will not abandon you. Let's pray. Father, you are our great deliverer. Lord, you are the master of writing epic stories of life change, of rescue, of overcoming sin, our own and others committed against us. Lord, you love us. You are merciful and gracious. You are righteous, Lord. You keep your promises always. You have saved us, Lord. And so we accept from you the cup of salvation, Lord. We offer our lives as a sacrifice of thanksgiving. And Lord, we call on your name in the presence of your people. Praise you, Lord. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.